welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the podcast about the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Lauren Burke. And I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And this week, you'll need to get out a bottle and line up like several shot glasses because we are dedicating this entire episode to discussing Harriet Beecher Stowe. If you've been listening to this show for the last four years, you may have heard her name pop up one, two, or, you know, even 35 times. She has a tendency to pop up in the literary lives of others, including Frances Harper, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, Fanny Fern, Lord Byron, Elizabeth Gaskell, and George Eliot, just to name a few. And so we have developed the six degrees of Harriet Beecher Stowe drinking game. Like patent pending, guys, you know, just just wait. It's coming. It's coming. <laughs> yes. Like, you're not going to get drunk playing it because like that shot is going to be every few weeks. It's a long game. Yeah. It is. It is a long game. Now, today we're going to focus on her time in Cincinnati and the success of Uncle Tom's Cabin and its many adaptations. But before we jump in, Lauren, do you want to give us a little background information? I will. So in case you have no idea who HBS is, the very short and very quick answer is that Harriet Beecher Stowe is the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is a very famous anti-slavery text that really resonated with the public in the years leading up to the Civil War. Now, the slightly longer answer is that Harriet Elizabeth Beecher was born on June 14th, 1811 in Hartford, Connecticut. Now, just to help sort of orient you on the bad timeline, Elizabeth Barrett Browning was born in 1806. Elizabeth Gaskell was born in 1810. Charlotte Bronte in 1816 and George Eliot in 1819. So all of these gals are contemporaries. Um, Now back to Harriet. Hannah, can you guess what her father did for a living? Yeah, I bet he was, all of the women's dads had this job. I think he was a cobbler. Oh, interesting. (laughs) Just kidding. Did he work for the church? He worked for the church. Yeah, obviously. (laughs) I mean, who didn't? I know. I feel like everyone was Mm -hmm. a minister. So um, Lyman Beecher was a very, very prominent Calvinist minister And this is one of the reasons why Harriet's life is so well documented. So in 1850, Lyman began work on this two-volume autobiography with the help of his children. And Harriet contributed pieces about like her childhood um, and growing up and everything along with some of her siblings. Harriet had 10 siblings. Uh, It's a lot. It's a lot. Um, Most notably, Henry Ward Beecher, who also became a famous abolitionist and was also a minister like his father, and Catherine Beecher, who was an educator, writer, and women's rights advocate. Harriet attended one of Catherine's schools, actually, the Hartford Female Seminary, where she received a solid education in mathematics, languages, and the classics. There, she was also classmates with Sarah Willis, who is also known as Fanny Fern. Take a shot. I feel like take a shot every time we do some sort of HBS connection. (laughs) Um, 
Fanny Fern is a writer who has been briefly mentioned on this show before, and I would still love, love, love to discuss Ruth Hall with everyone one of these days. Put that on the agenda. Great book. Anyway, in 1832, Lyman Beecher became the president of the Lane Theological Seminary in Cincinnati, Ohio. Harriet was 21 and unmarried at the time, so she went ahead and moved along with her family to Ohio. Um, Cincinnati is a very interesting city, and it's been coming up for us a lot lately on the podcast. And it's actually going to continue to keep coming up because of its like location. So for our non-American friends, Ohio was in the north, and it was a free state. But Cincinnati is located like right along the southern border, just mm. right along the river. And on that other side of the river is Kentucky, where slavery was legal. Yeah, and we drove past Cincinnati mm-hmm. from we were in Kentucky and you were like, that's Cincinnati. And there's like, yeah, this big like you bridge. could just see it. Yeah. It's like a big brown bridge and like the river's really big. Yeah. Yes. So Cincinnati was also an active destination on the Underground Railroad um, because people were regularly escaping by crossing that border. And there was a free black population. Um, But this isn't like some sort of multicultural utopia. Um, I wrote in my notes that there were a lot of racial tensions, but like, honestly, that's a huge understatement. Mm -hmm. So you have this like, steady stream of of slave catchers essentially crossing that border looking for people who are on the run um there were race riots in 1829 1836 and 1841 and these riots were all driven by white people who were trying to drive out the black population and their sympathizers by attacking them in fact in 1841 they actually secured a cannon and began like firing it at black owned homes. And during this riot, over 300 African-Americans were arrested. And then while they were being held, their homes were burned to the ground. Ohio was a free state, but the wealthy businessmen of Cincinnati were making their money by supplying Southern plantations with pork. So it financially benefited them to Mm. keep slavery in place, right? Now, Harriet lived in Cincinnati for 18 years, and she would have been there for the riots in 36 and 41. And we also know that she attended the Lane Seminary debates in 1834, which was a series of debates that were held over the course of 18 days at her father's school regarding slavery. And I'm going to go ahead and stop there because we are going to be continuing this discussion with our interviewees. So as you know, the theme for this mini-series is adaptation, and today we're talking to Tammy and Kelly Rundle, the husband and wife team that form Fourth Wall Films. Fourth Wall Films is an Illinois-based film and video production company specialising in Midwestern historical documentaries for public television broadcast and DVD, Blu-ray and streaming release. They've produced not one, but two Harriet Beecher Stowe films, that's two shots, Uh, One is a documentary called Becoming Harriet Beecher Stowe, and the other is a dramatised film centering on the Lane Seminary debates called Sons and Daughters of Thunder. To get started, 
we'll have, you know, you guys take me back wherever you'd like to take me back to. Like, just, you know, talk about your background, your interest in filmmaking and just how you how and why you started Fourth Wall Films. We were kind of reflecting on that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we both at a young age, I guess, exhibited uh, indications that we might be storytellers. Mm-hmm. Uh, in school, we both took an interest in uh, writing and writing short stories. And um, perhaps more importantly, we both made films with our father's uh, movie cameras. Oh, nice. <laughs> and, and so one of the first things, uh, we're celebrating our 41st wedding anniversary in August. So we've known each other for 42 years, actually. And yeah. one of the first things we did when we were dating is uh, we made a film together. It happened to be a kind of a documentary, a short film. But so I guess we started working together on those things right at the get-go. And we did, we finished uh, college together. And so we made a film in college. And then, um, and then uh, you know, at some point we, uh, we moved from the Kansas City area where we were living to Los Angeles and my, my intention at that time was to get involved in the Hollywood uh, film industry in some way. Mm-hmm. I had been doing video production work. And um, so I, we, I, I got a job actually with Columbia Pictures. So I worked uh, at Columbia and TriStar Pictures, now called Sony Pictures, um, for about seven years. But just about three years into that, I, I was thinking about the films that the studio had produced over the previous year. And I was thinking, gosh, there's only maybe two or three that I'm sort of really pleased to be associated with <laughs> in, some, in some way or another. I was working in distribution, foreign distribution and marketing. But so that's when we started talking about producing something independently. And we settled on a, a true crime story called Velisca Living with a Mystery. And that was about the 1912 Villisca, Iowa axe murders and how that crime distorted this small rural community. So that was kind of our, that was the beginning of everything that has followed. I think we have 19 completed films now. And it's not like we, uh, you know, decided, hey, let's make documentary films. Mm-hmm. You know, we uh, we both loved movies. We spent a lot of times going a lot of time going to movies in the best theaters in the world, which are located in Los Angeles. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we just kind of evolved into this, you know, interest really in focusing on making documentary films, telling true stories. And we, I guess we kind of learned early on that our interest was in not in doing stories focused on the East Coast or the West Coast, like a lot of documentaries are. We were more interested in uh, focusing on Midwestern stories because that's where we're from. That's where our hearts are. So Uh, We found all kinds of little gems, stories that people did not know anything about, really, uh, to focus our storytelling uh, cameras on. I love that. I mean, I'm also a a Midwestern gal, so full disclosure there, but... (laughs) Good. 
I I think the same exact thing though. I'm like, I think especially as we get further and further into the this podcast, now we're like in our fifth year. I'm like, oh, I'm really interested in the stories that no one's talking about. I have sort of a strange obsession with Harriet Beecher Stowe because I feel like she's anyone that studies women writers too. Like she pops up everywhere. <laughs> she's like related yep. to everyone. She was in everyone's business. She was pen pals with George Eliot. Like it's she just like is almost stalking me. So I'm always curious to know what what draws other people to Harriet Beecher Stowe. Wow. Yeah. So you've really come to the right filmmakers then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, like so many things in our life, it was a circuitous route uh, to Harriet. And um, she came to us, well, sort of, uh, I guess it was through this Sons and Daughters of Thunder uh, docudrama project. But the, uh, the woman who um, wrote the play that the film is based upon, um, a friend of hers kind of put us together. So they had seen a film that we did called Lost Nation of the Iowa. And for some reason they thought we would be a good fit for this docudrama, <laughs> a completely different kind of a project. But uh, of course we're so grateful that, um, that they kind of introduced us to the playwright. But, um, you know, as a child, my earliest exposure to Harriet's work Again, sort of uh, offbeat, but it was seeing the Uncle Tom's Cabin sequence in um, The King and I. The King and I, yes. The musical. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, I never read the book as a child. And so it was much later when I, when I finally uh, did that. But that would be my, my earliest exposure to Harriet's work. Most of the American public became familiar they saw Uncle Tom's Cabin in the form of one of the unauthorized plays as opposed to actually reading it either when it was published in serial form or later with the book. Of course, many, many people read the book too, over, world, the world over. But mm -hmm. so I guess me seeing it in a movie <laughs> wasn't so strange. Yeah. But I love that sequence visually, you know, as a filmmaker, I just think it's beautiful and, uh, and it's, it's not difficult to see why it made an impression on me as a child. But it was the Sons and Daughters of Thunder really where we became familiar or more uh, exposed to Harriet Beecher Stowe. I can't say that we had really done anything in depth no. when it came to her until that. Yeah, and that play uh, was produced, it was written and produced in the 1970s in Washington State, uh, had good notices. Um, but then I don't believe it was ever produced again after that on the stage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and the play, we got together with the playwright and her husband and, and they wanted us to adapt it to a screenplay. And then that's what we did. Um, but, Go ahead. but the play focused uh, character wise more on Catherine. Mm -hmm. And Catherine, of course, was very accomplished in her own right, but we thought, well, no one knows Catherine, you know, no one kind of remembers her like they do Harriet. So that was one change that we made uh, in the film, did some research of our own, and then kind of brought Harriet up in the narrative. Gotcha. Uh, where, you, where you saw her when you watched the film. So we just found her to be a very interesting person at that point when Kelly was doing a lot of the research on her, you know, 
um, she comes from this really extraordinary family of overachievers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, Lyman Beecher, uh, you know, being this yeah famous minister, her father, and Henry Ward Beecher, who was a social reformer and abolitionist. And Catherine, of course, you know, big in educating, edu- educating women. So it, you know, you're seeing where Harriet is coming from. And of course, there is this expectation that she carry her own. I mean, she is a Beecher. We kind of joked about uh, when we were making um, the film that we were going to do a series. Uh, do you remember what we were talking about? <laughs> yeah, just jokingly, you know, being being the Beechers or something. You know? <laughs> I mean, absolutely. I, I'm, on bo- I'm completely on board with this idea. <laughs> yeah, they were just really interesting people. And But as you saw in the film, we portray Harriet in those early years in Cincinnati as uh, kind of an observer. And, mm-hmm. and, and that, she did that. And we, I think that's somewhat accurate. Mm-hmm. She didn't, you know, in the same way that when she moved to Cincinnati, she began to write about New England. You know, she didn't write about her Cincinnati experiences until leaving and returning to the East uh, much later. But you think about when she was born in 1811 in this prominent family. And she was growing up at a time when America was largely opposed to slavery and, uh, you know, but unwilling to make a stand. And she was not a radical uh, as abolitionists were looked at at that time. Um, She was following in the footsteps of her her father, who was a colonization uh, supporter. Yeah, I mean, that's as near as we can tell, she was probably probably followed the family line of colonizationists. Uh, but of course, that evolved over time. But Harriet kind of moves into our wheelhouse uh, because she's in Ohio, which, of course, in those days was in the West, but mm-hmm. now the Midwest. So our secret plan was to steal Harriet away from the people on the East Coast if we could. And mm-hmm. that's what we tried to do in these two films. I'm really glad that you did, actually, because I like to think of her as a as a regionalist writer, but she's like such an interesting regionalist writer because she's just all over the place. Right, yeah. right. And I'm really glad that you got in the, the bit about her sort of evolving position, because I think that's really important to show that people, you know, grow and change <laughs> as well, they learn. We've thought about her in a way. Uh, as a reflection of what happened to America as a whole, mm-hmm. that she makes this change. Um, I mean, it just turns out that she's also a huge part of what <laughs> caused that change. <laughs> sure. Through the book. Uh, the book was, you know, you don't think of a work of fiction as having that kind of power, but um, but it did. But but she's like a lot of Americans. So the in a, in a way opposed to slavery, but maybe doesn't want to talk about it, or it's kind of a touchy subject. And, um, and it's not understood by a lot of people that uh, black and white American citizens could fully integrate. Mm-hmm. And um, so she evolved in her thinking on the subject. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing that's amazing about her is she's balancing at that time being a wife to Calvin Stowe, which could be rather challenging at times. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) She's the mother of 
uh, well, ultimately seven children, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and, um, and, and she's balancing all of that while writing, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of, for me, I, I find that amazing. And she was, you know, very deeply involved in her faith and she, but she, her faith, you know, unlike Kelvin who had to plan everything out and, and everything had to be right in its place and, and they had to figure out how they were going to do this and that. She was somebody that just believed that everything was just going to work out, mm-hmm. you know? So those were the things that kind of fascinated me about her. Um, and well, and in that way, she feels kind of modern, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, yes, a woman expected to balance all of those things. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and, uh, and she had some health problems, uh, <laughs> to, yeah. to make things even a bit more complicated. Right. And even, and even though she's, it seems modern, she was somebody, we kind of look at her as kind of this hero, but she was, you know, somebody that was not really on the right side of history when it came to women's suffrage, mm-hmm. you know, and equality. Right. Yeah. Well, that's one of the, that's one of the, if you want to call it a complaint, people think, oh, I'm disappointed that yeah. in some way that Harriet didn't uh, also have these other views, which you kind of had this expectation. Yeah, she you, might. You right. think she's probably in favor of women having the vote, but no, she was like, well, why would I want that responsibility? <laughs> right. I, got all, I got all this other stuff I'm doing, you know, <laughs> already was, overwhelmed. She was a remarkable <laughs> figure, but you know, she's, she's a human figure, you know, she's, right. she's flawed, just like any of us, right. which is what makes her so cool. I think that's really important to note, too, because so many documentaries, books, I mean, everything, the media portrays these women oftentimes in hindsight as heroes and puts them on a pedestal. And we do have to absolutely remember that they were they were not perfect. Right. Exactly right. And that makes her more relatable mm-hmm. you know, for us. Um, so I don't know. It was kind of fun with uh uh, just to kind of dig into who she was as a person, mm-hmm. you know, her writing, of course, is, you know, wonderful, but it was just kind of fun to dig into who Harriet Beecher Stowe was. And that's what we were interested in, in trying to create these stories. And so you have the film and you also have a documentary. And how did those two come about? Like, what came first? And Did you work on any bits simultaneously and all that good stuff? It's a lot. Yeah. What came first was Sons and Daughters of Thunder. So the docudrama. And that was from the time we first met with the playwright. And and then, you know, by the time it was finished, was actually about 10 years altogether. And we did the production part over about a six month period. And then, um, you know, toward the end of that 10 year period. So it, it's, that, that's where we started. And um, as I mentioned, we took, uh, brought Harriet up in, in the narrative. Uh, and we also, as you do with any drama, you, you take some liberty. Now I thought as we reviewed the play, many of the things that I thought were creations uh, by the writer of the play um, turned out to be based on fact. So, oh, and the longer and the longer we live with the story, the more we discover how much 
um, everything was based on on real uh, research. Mm -hmm. We, we uh, the, the playwright has drifted into Alzheimer's and had begun drifting in by the time we met her. So she she does not now recall this and didn't when we first talked with her. She had pretty sketchy memories of how she did the research in the 70s, but it was old school, um, you know, interlibrary loan and whatever, but mm -hmm. uh, no, no internet research. Yay. Yeah, it was written by Erlene Hawley, and she she did a remarkable job um, in telling the story. A story we'd never heard. You know, mm -hmm. you know it seems like the first uh, public debate about the abolition of, of slavery might be a something you would have heard about. Right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it, you know, it, in, in the city of Cincinnati, it was really controversial. And I don't know if you are aware of Cincinnati's history, but they sort of riot at the drop of a hat. <laughs> so mm -hmm. there was that kind of unrest uh, that was potentially possible in response just to students having a discussion like that uh, about the issue of abolition. Mm -hmm. So it seems odd now, but that was the environment, especially since uh, it was a uh, Cincinnati was right on the border mm -hmm. uh, with a slave state, mm -hmm. and slaves were crossing, uh, you know, the Ohio River nightly uh, to escape uh, to the north. So it, it was a very interesting community. It was also kind of a boom town, and so uh, there was just a lot of activity uh, happening there all the time. So this the film Sons and Daughters of Thunder. It, it I guess if you were to boiled it down it really is kind of um the awakening of a young harriet beecher to the horrors of slavery as a result of meeting abolitionist theodore weld and his lane rebels um the lane rebels got that name uh they were students at lane theological seminary and basically were abolitionists and um so the story really is about her witnessing um, these debates that take place, this just, you know, heated discussion about uh, colonization versus, versus abolition. abolition. Um, and that was 18 nights of debates that took place. Um, and it had an impact on her. Yeah, this was a time of great oratory. So people did attend speeches and things as a, I guess you'd say as a form of entertainment mm -hmm. uh, so no, no TV, no radio, but right. go out and hear a, an evening full of speeches. And that was good. A good evening. And maybe we should mention what colonization is believed. Yeah. You know, so the colonization the... is into just quickly say what, what that's about is they wanted to end slavery, but they didn't understand that white and black citizens could live together uh, and be integrated fully. So they wanted to send um, former slaves back to Africa, free them and send them back to Africa. Of course, these were all folks who, most of whom had been born in the United States and right. whose families had been in the United States for many generations, perhaps some of them. So uh, that was just a, their understanding of, of how to do it. Uh, they didn't know though how to make that work mm -hmm. economically for the South. And so Theodore Weld and his lane rebels, as they were, uh, I guess you would say titled or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they were, they were in favor of complete 
abolishment of slavery in America. So it was quite a heated discussion that went on between it. The debates were open to the public and, uh, you know, so went on for 18 nights. And I think they were, they were uh, successful in, in convincing people that abolishing slavery was the way to go. Yeah, the debates were, were not well documented in terms of the details. Mm-hmm. But for example, one of the things that we added to the, the screenplay, we, we found a transcript um, of a speech by uh, Lane Seminary's only black student, mm-hmm. uh, James Bradley. So Bradley gave a similar speech we know at the debates. So, and then he gave it again later. So, so that part of the debate is act, those are actually his words. He was uh, a former slave. He was a former yeah, slave. And it's yeah, a, and it's a shorter version of his full speech, but mm-hmm. it's the essence of it. Um, but yeah, it, it, had, it, was, it was reported, uh, I guess, and people who were interested in abolition certainly took notice of what happened in Cincinnati. And as you saw in the film, the leaders of the seminary <laughs> took interest and, yeah. and, and then it becomes a free speech issue as you know, we've seen this on contemporary college campuses where the administration will try to restrict uh, student free speech in various ways, almost always unsuccessfully. Mm-hmm. And then moving on to Harriet Beecher Stowe, the documentary that came after we were done with Sons and Daughters of Thunder. Right. It was something that I thought, you know, we, we, we know this story. We know, uh, you know, how this particular event in Ohio history impacted Harriet and how it did influence, you know, have some influence on her writing Uncle Tom's Cabin. So I suggested to Kelly you know, I don't think anything's been done on her Cincinnati years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I would make the argument that without her experiences in Cincinnati, you do not have Uncle Tom's Cabin. Right. Yeah. And, and then you have a different uh, American history. I don't know how different, but you, but I, I believe the book did change the course of history. Mm-hmm. So maybe it just turned people away from slavery sooner. I, I don't know. I mean, I mm-hmm. think it just had that significant an impact. And so uh, again, she moves into our wheelhouse in that event because it's in what we now consider part of the Midwest. And she doesn't get that inspiration. She doesn't get those experiences living on the East Coast. She only gets them mm-hmm. in Cincinnati. When she lived in Cincinnati for 18 years, you know, she came there as a young, really kind of a, a young woman who was just starting to find her her voice, I would say, in terms of her writing, you know, she became, uh, she was moving into a completely different uh, place, um, you know, from her East Coast upbringing. She is being exposed to all kinds of different people, uh, witnessing all kinds of new experiences. And um, she, 18 years, she becomes a wife, she becomes a mother, she loses a son, you know, she goes through a couple of waves of cholera, you know, mm-hmm. a riot or two. Yes. Yeah. So she's <laughs> being exposed, she's, she's over in Kentucky, and she's, uh, you know, witnessing slavery firsthand. 
And so all of these things had a tremendous impact on her life. And uh, that's, that's really what got us interested, um, not only in do, doing Sons and Daughters of Thunder, but we thought we need to explore this as a documentary as well. So that's how that came about. So I wanted to say one thing about the Harriet Beecher Stowe House in Cincinnati. That's just uh, still to me an amazing uh, uh, odd circumstance. And that is that the writer of Sons and Daughters of Thunder wrote a play, much of the action of which took place in the Beecher home. So what's now called the Harriet Beecher Stowe House in Cincinnati was actually Lyman Beecher's residence as the president of the seminary. So it's the only remaining structure of what was originally the Lane Seminary uh, yeah. grounds. So, uh, but she didn't know that this house even existed still. <laughs> so oh. when, when we read the play, and then one of the first things I, I asked her was, I said, so uh, have you been to the, the Harry Beecher Stowe house in Cincinnati? And she said, what do you mean? <laughs> oh no. So she didn't even know that it existed, but I mean, what a, uh, what an, an amazing resource for us mm -hmm. uh, to be able to shoot some portions of the film, at least with people playing, uh, you know, uh, Harriet and uh, Theodore Weld and her father yeah. Lyman and to do that in the house <laughs> where these yeah. things actually took place. It was just really as documentary filmmakers, we just appreciated that opportunity. Ohio does a great job with their historic sites and they are engaged right now in restoring that house, mm -hmm. which is going to be really amazing. Uh, even more amazing when it's all done. Yes. So, um, for this series, we're talking to a lot of filmmakers and artists just about the challenges of nonfiction storytelling. And so, you know, it could be anything. If you want to tell us about any struggle, <laughs> I think it's always. <laughs> yeah, it's always a financial struggle. Uh, sure, sure. I'm seeing a common thread. <laughs> but, um, I think at least with the, this is, you know, of course, We'll start with Sons and Daughters. Of them. Yeah, of course, that's sure. a, that is a work of fiction. But as I mentioned, you know, heavily steeped in history, however. Well, it's um, based on a true story. But yeah. we do take creative license. So it, with any story, you just have to figure out how to, you've got the information uh, that you want to convey about people and about places and, and activities. And you, you're just trying to put that into a form that intrigues your audience, keeps them engaged. And. Uh, hopefully when it's done, they, they take away some, <laughs> something uh, positive, you know, from the experience. Mm -hmm. Films in general aren't very good at communicating information or facts. Uh, they, they certainly do that, but for the most part, people have a feeling about what they saw and that's what, that's what they carry with them is, is that feeling. Um, so with that story, it was a way, it was a matter of, uh, a, a matter of trying to balance uh, historical fact with, being engaging in a, a dramatic sense. And it, it feels like we did that with that story. It's a very talky um, movie because it, it's about speech. It's a film about, <laughs> right. about speech, but, um, and, and with limited budgets uh, available, uh, it's difficult to create some of the Hollywood magic that's available to our, our friends in Hollywood. But- um, Well, we felt encouraged though, because we watched Lincoln Spielberg's Lincoln oh, yeah. right mm -hmm. in the middle right in the middle of making 
Thunder. maybe it was even before we went into production. Uh, we watched the film Lincoln here in the Quad Cities with a, you know, a general audience. Mm -hmm. And at the end, the audience applauded. Now that's something that used to happen often in LA, but in the Midwest, we're more reserved, right? We don't. <laughs> oh yeah. I don't often do that, but I thought, well, I was so impressed because really Lincoln was just a docudrama about passing a bill. And, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and you know, what could be duller than that in a way, but, um, but people really were engaged with it. And we found mm -hmm. that to be true with, with sons and daughters as well, that, that people are engaged. In fact, our, our favorite screenings, I think, were the ones in uh, Cincinnati. Cincinnati and downtown Cincinnati. We had a, a, a racially mixed urban audience and they really, really enjoyed it. It was just uh, lots of fun to show it there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the string, you know, we're making a period piece on a, string, on a shoestring budget. Mm -hmm. which was we're documentary filmmakers this was our first docudrama so that alone was kind of crazy to take yeah we're, we're used to being just the two of us uh yeah in production in the field and there were days on thunder when we were trying to coordinate you know 50 or 60 people on, okay. on set uh, so yeah that was a traumatizing experience for <laughs> it really was but it was fun it was a good experience um and uh the other challenge was we're in Illinois. This story takes place in Cincinnati. Yeah. Uh, so like Kelly said earlier, we did do some shooting at the Harriet Beecher Stowe house, a few scenes there, but most of the scenes were shot in historic sites in Illinois. Oh, and okay. One of them was, and that was because of our budget. You know, we just mm -hmm. couldn't go flying yeah. off, you know, every weekend to Cincinnati to shoot or, you know, or mm -hmm. off to the East Coast, trying to find historic sites that were the right air, uh, year or, you know, that kind of thing. So we focused uh, our large cast kind of in this area, this region, and found some wonderful sites, including the Jenny Lynn Chapel in Andover, Illinois. Um, and that uh, was the stand-in for the Lane Chapel, where the okay. debates took place. And uh, it, was, it was great. It was built in 1851. It's this little small Swedish village, but it had the right look. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when you are looking for locations, there are times where you just feel like you're being guided you know, to specific mm -hmm. places. And it was kind of amazing. We learned that the Jenny Lynn Chapel had this history of going through cholera, the cholera pandemic, you know. There oh, wow. Yeah, there's a cholera cemetery right in the mm -hmm. front yard. Yeah. Um, and, and the community had a history of, of being involved in the abolitionist movement as well. So yes, so it's it a good fit. Yeah, it was great. They embraced the, the production. Right. And then with the Harriet Beecher Stowe, documentary um you know because of our work on sons and daughters of thunder we felt like we had a leg up on harriet's life in cincinnati of course mm -hmm. and but the challenge with that is always how best to tell the story visually mm -hmm. uh, it's a little bit of a challenge because of course early on in her story we don't have photographs to um help us portray that. So right. it, it's visually you have to work things out that way. And um, we had this idea of the canal boat as a, a, a thread. Yeah. <laughs> I, I got sort of fascinated by the idea of that 
you know, when she got ready to leave and relocate back to the East Coast, she took a canal boat. And that's a, a very uh, kind of, <laughs> I would call it almost an elegant way to travel. Have you been on a canal boat before? Have you ever done I, that? I have, not for a long time, but as a kid, yeah. I was. Yeah, so there, it's almost like sailing, you know, so there's no motor, it's quiet, um, you're moving along at a pretty slow pace, really, as fast as your uh, mules can <laughs> can walk, mm -hmm. you're not running. Mm -hmm. And, um, but anyway, I thought, uh, knowing that Harriet, as soon as she got settled, in a sense, wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, in other words, she distilled that Cincinnati experience. I just imagine that as she's taking that canal boat ride back to the east of her birth, that she's reflecting, beginning to reflect uh, in a way on her experiences in Cincinnati. So that's where we came up with that notion. And we had a little bit of, uh, I mean, uh, trying to figure out where to do that was a little bit of a challenge. And then we settled on Piqua. And as it turns out, the, or the old canal um, route uh, went north out of Cincinnati and through Pequot. So that would have been an area that she would have actually gone through um, on the canal boat. So that makes it even more meaningful. So we were filming at the Johnston Farm in the Indian Agency, which is this really wonderful place to go and visit. And they had, I think the boat was actually the right time period too. Yes. For yes. That. Oh, very cool. Yeah, yeah, no, it was really, it was really great. It was interesting, though, when we showed this film, the Becoming Harriet Beecher Stowe in Cincinnati, to conclude our uh, Ohio Humanities grant, uh, a gentleman came up to me afterward, and he said, I, I, I like the movie, I didn't understand the canal boat thing. We, we didn't have any canal boats in Cincinnati. <laughs> we were like, what? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yes, you well, did. <laughs> well, not not so. I mean, there is a canal, <laughs> I think, and right? uh, yeah. that's usually an indicator. But but you know, it's one of those little things uh, uh, that was common uh, prior, just prior to railroads, and we've kind of forgotten about them. I think. Right. We were, the the other great thing about becoming Harriet Beecher Stowe is that we had access to, you know, these exceptional experts on Harriet's life right you know we had scholars and teachers and historians and writers that sat down and you know talked to us one of them was Dr. Joan Hedrick who wrote uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe a Life which is a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, book um, and she was just really excellent to sit and I could have I could have talked to her for days. Yeah, that was really a nice. She was so good. Afternoon. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, and once you get to Cincinnati, you're going to, of course, uh, meet um, Dr. John Douglas, who is yep. excellent. And Chris DeSimio. Uh, we interviewed uh, Dr. John Getz and Dr. Christine Anderson and Dr. Michelle Watts, as well as uh, the writer Phil McFarland. Loves, loves of Harriet Beecher Stowe. So we were really fortunate to be able to sit and talk to those people. They we, were very patient with us. We get to, we have the honor of being able to hang out with people who are way smarter than we are. Yes. <laughs> I know the feeling. That's like my whole life <laughs> for this show. So, yeah, it's, it, it, that was, I don't know. I just, that was a wonderful documentary project to work on. I think one of the most, um, I know you were asking about challenging things with Harriet, the documentary, uh, 
I don't, it just, that seemed to be a, a pretty easy, mm-hmm. not easy, but it was yeah, not well, as complicated. Maybe it was because of Sons and Daughters of Thunder. Yeah. And Baptism because, by Fire. And because that is what we do mostly. We create right. documentaries. So it's a little, yeah. There were some, uh, there was a learning curve too, especially post production on the docudrama. Right. Mm-hmm. So by, by the time we got done with Sons and Daughters of Thunder, 10 years of work on that, you know, feeling overwhelmed, uh, becoming Harriet Beecher Stowe is almost a cakewalk. Right. right. A return to form. Just <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Our comfort That's zone. Right. Okay. Right. We've done that uh, docudrama thing. We don't have to do that again. That was, that was okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't, have you been to Harriet's grave? I'm in Andover, Massachusetts. I have not. Oh, okay. I would say if you can get out there, mm-hmm. I don't know. We like cemeteries. Mm-hmm. And uh, for us, that was the last place we went uh, when we were filming for the documentary. Yeah. And it was just, I was, I guess I was expecting her to be in this gigantic, you know, cemetery where we were going to have to spend hours trying to find where she was. And, mm-hmm. and it's a very small cemetery in Andover, Massachusetts. What's the name of that? Is it Phillips Academy? Isn't that where they, I think that's what it was. But uh, she's buried there. She has this large monument. Um, Calvin is buried, I think at the foot of her. Yeah, his stone is nearby, a more modest acknowledgement. And her son, Henry Ellis is buried there as well. He's the son that drowned, but um, you know, she died in Hartford, Connecticut in 1896. She was buried in that small cemetery. And uh, Kelly was filming, and I'm reading this monument, and her children had these words engraved on her stone. It says, her children rise up and call her blessed. You know, it's just beautiful. I, it was a, just kind of an emotional moment standing there after taking this long journey through Cincinnati, knowing where all of this led with Uncle Tom's cabin and her writing and her life. And and it was just kind of a remarkable moment standing there, you know, after everything. Yeah, I think you mentioned this earlier, but we were also at her birthplace. So we kind of covered the ground. Yeah, right. Exactly. So you felt like you had been walking in her footsteps. Now, um, I'm interested to know, because you guys have been doing this a while, mm-hmm. if you have any advice for aspiring filmmakers, documentary filmmakers especially, too, because I think that's, we don't talk about that enough. Right. So I would advise them to go to medical school or <laughs> take up the law. Or, uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm really we, hoping my daughter is an engineer like my husband. We, so We, we have... Um, we have worked with some interns and of course I do my best to discourage them from entering this field, but (laughs) some of them do seem determined. And of course that's, that's really what you have to be. Just because it's so challenging. You've got to be someone who, who can stick to something that is kind of difficult, uh, often a challenge, very rewarding, but, but pretty challenging. But I always tell young people to, to learn and to respect the craft of filmmaking you know, um, I think a lot, sometimes young filmmakers sort of want to pretend they're, they're creating the art form, you know, that, mm-hmm. 
that all of these techniques that we all use were pretty much created during the silent movie era by the, by the pioneers of, of the art form. So I encourage uh, young people to watch a lot of movies and to also watch older movies, not just the new ones. Mm-hmm. And um, watch and, documentaries. Yeah, whatever it is you want to make, uh, that's what you should be watching. Although you can learn about storytelling through novels or through um, narrative films as well. Uh, but I, I feel strongly that you at least have to know the rules before you break them. They're, the rules are there for a reason. They are solid and you can um, leave them, but uh, you, you need to understand them to know how to leave them properly, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> and, and then I think you can get caught also, and this is probably true for people who write as well. You can get caught feeling like you need one more thing before you make that film maybe you feel like you need to learn something else maybe you feel like you need to have a different piece of equipment or and you're you're sort of always waiting and you know because you need one more thing so and i and sometimes people wait for permission in a way from someone else so i try to tell people to not to wait don't wait for permission don't wait until you have better equipment depending on what it is you should just make your first film and then learn from it and make another. Um, and just do, do the work with what you have now instead of waiting until later, which often turns into never. Right. Now there are people like, like for us, even though we know it's challenging, even though we know, you know, how are we gonna raise the money for this? How are we going to get this done? There's just this natural thing in us where we, you know, we can't imagine doing anything else but this. This is what we want to do. And I think that John Douglas in the Coming Here at Beecher Stowe documentary, you know, there was something he said during his interview that spoke to me. And that was that, you know, Harriet had this natural inclination that she had to write, you know, that's what she had to do. And she did that. She followed that. And uh, I feel like we have that natural inclination to keep making films. For, for better or for worse. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> now, where can people find you to support you and purchase your stuff? Wow, that would be fantastic. <laughs> right? Right? It's always that's, good. Uh, yeah, that's one of the struggles, too, mm-hmm. you know. Um, Getting the word out. Yeah, as a small... Yeah independent company there's there are lots of people who would be very interested in our work but they just never learn about it you know mm-hmm. so right that's why it's helpful to talk with folks like you and and to introduce ourselves to and our work to new people our website is fourthwallfilms.com and if, you know that's where you would find information about um, everything that we have going and everything we've previously produced our films are all available uh, on that website and they're also available on Amazon. And we do still, although in the era of COVID, this has been difficult, we do have lots of sort of brick and mortar places who carry our films for various reasons, either because the topic is applicable to their historic site or you know that kind of thing. Um, the Harry Beecher Stowe House, of course, in Cincinnati has DVD copies for sale of Sons and Daughters of Thunder and, and becoming Harriet Beecher Stowe. So it's that kind of um, arrangement as well. And there are films 
tend to end up on uh, Midwestern PBS stations. Um, they've been in a number of film festivals and we usually, all of that information is usually on our website. So people can find out if there's anything showing nearby or showing or airing on PBS. And if people just want to date our films and not marry them, <laughs> uh, we're streaming uh, yes. on Vimeo. Um, oh, most perfect. Of our, most of our films. Right. So I think that's, I think that's the best way to find us. And we are back. So I did want to say that my introduction to Uncle Tom's Cabin was also via The King and I. Oh, and that's after interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so I, you know, I'm relieved to hear other people say that. Um, and it did set me off thinking about like why and how it ended up in the Roger and Hammerstein musical. And actually, Lauren, I think you'll be proud of me because this is a really good Bonnets at Dawn story. Oh, awesome. Okay, cool. So first of all, did you know that The King and I is based on a 1945 novel called Anna and the King of Siam? I had heard that, but I had never okay. looked into it. So it was written by a woman called Margaret Landon, but the novel is based on the writing of the actual governess who taught the royal children and the concubines in the court of Siam. That's and the cool, reason, actually. right? That's cool. Yeah, I would actually want to read that. Okay, interesting. So the reason the film features the unauthorized play of the novel is because Anna Leon, I don't know how to say her name, Anna Le- Leon, Leon Owens. Owens yeah, it feels like you've got to say it all at once. Like I know, Hannah it's weird. Leon Owens. Yeah. <laughs> um, she took the book with her to Siam. Oh, cool. Um, so the reason that the film features the unauthorized play of the novel is because the governess, Anna Leon Owens, introduced the court to Stowe's novel. And apparently in the second book, there is a noblewoman who goes by the name Harriet Beecher Stowe, son, Clint whoa and said that uncle tom's cabin was her favorite book and she wanted to be good like harriet beecher stowe that's so cool so i did learn all of this in uh, a number of essays but the one in particular that i'd recommend people check out was published in commonplace the journal of early american life it's called curiouser and curiouser uncle tom's cabin anna leon owens and the king and i and it's really worth a read. Um, there's a line in the introduction I really liked that says, Uncle Tom travels in book form to England, then east to Siam, present day Thailand. Then via a series of unpredictable textual translations, he returns to England and then back over to America where he emerges a Siamese Tom in a Hollywood Siam. Interesting. Now, you know, my master's is in transnational writing. So yeah. <laughs> my little alarm bell was ringing when I read that. Um, And there's a bit of the essay that I would like to read, if that's okay. It's so good. This version of Uncle... So it's it's talking specifically about the unauthorized play version of Uncle Tom's Cabin within The King and I. Mm -hmm. This version of Uncle Tom's Cabin, one of the most minimal and distorted reinventions of the narrative on stage or film, is the climax in a series of curious moves that a number of texts supposedly all dealing with a Siamese harem, make around Stowe's novel over the course of nearly a century. Stowe's book is taken out to Siam, forms the basis of Leon Owen's work as an abolitionist critic, 
converts a Siamese concubine, herself a slaveholder, to the abolition cause, cause, then in increasingly elaborate ways infiltrates American popular musical culture until it finally re-emerges as the play within the musical in The King and I. Henry James is right. This novel is a miraculous creature that seems capable of adapting to any cultural environment where slavery is an issue. Wow. So I read the article. I read a couple. um, And I'm going to add my own sentence to the journey of Uncle Tom's Cabin, right? Mm -hmm. So what this has me thinking about in England in 2021 doing a podcast about Uncle Tom's Cabin (laughs) is one, I need to go back to university so I can read all of the essays I couldn't access because I don't have an institutional login. (laughs) And two, um, it really, once again, uh, comes up a lot on the show, just made me question my own relationship with Britain's history with slavery and abolition and empire and how this is a really good example of feeling like on the one hand you're doing okay and on the other hand what is going on right because Mm -hmm. Anna and the King the film might decry slavery but it's pro-colonization right Anna and the King casts Russian American actor Yul Brynner as the King of Siam but completely falls down on any kind of discussion or depiction on race and yet is a really strong accidental almost example of feminism of that time because of like Anna the character is an incredibly feminist character and so like kind of like the duality of it where you're like rock on you're not like we're against (laughs) slavery that's great but then you're like what is Uncle Tom's cabin being used to uphold it's so complicated that's fascinating. I've like there's just an been, episode in that, honestly. There, there's absolutely an es- episode <laughs> in that. I, I think that um, it's funny because I keep thinking about returning to school just to like to study Harriet Beecher Stowe, and it's not just like Harriet that I'm interested in or all of her interactions, but like all of this that it, this opens up so many th- things like this mm-hmm. exactly. Um, oh. And I should say too, sorry, the essay, um, it was just like, uh, The King and I is an adaptation of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Like it can be directly read as it. Yeah. And it like pulled out all that. But I haven't read Uncle Tom's Cabin. So I was like, (laughs) I'm going to take your word for it. And then when I read Uncle Tom's Cabin, I'll be like, oh, I've seen this movie. It has songs in it. So I like, I found out more about all of these early unauthorized adaptations of Stowe's Mm. novel. So just to give you a little bit of background here, um, Uncle Tom's Cabin was first published in 1852 and it was an immediate bestseller. So 3,000 on the first day, 10,000 copies in the first week. There were 1.5 million copies sold in a year, I think just in the UK. That's And then they... They estimate that like people lent those copies to at least like five to ten friends. So I'm like, mm. did everyone in the UK read Uncle Tom's Cabin <laughs> at one point? Apparently then, but is <laughs> yeah. that the same recently? Do we teach it in schools, people in the UK? Have you read this? Yeah, I'd be curious to hear overseas if this is still taught in schools. We did actually, um, we do a section here in the mm. United States 
uh, on it for sure. It's either like red or um, it's kind of taught in history. More like in the history books. So it might be more in like the history section versus the English section. Um, But yeah, this book was massively important. I mean, second only in sales to the Bible. And then I think at one point it maybe outsold the Bible, but it's up there. It's up there. The success of the novel immediately inspired adaptations for the stage. Like it looks like the very first one was hastily produced by this fellow named Charlie Taylor in New York the very same year. So mm. they're like, got to get it out. Got to get it out. It's a hit right now. Yeah, it's like we were talking about in a previous episode with Sally Cooks and just taking the dialogue from Jane Eyre. They were doing, they that was the mm-hmm. the court case with between Francis Hodgson Burnett and E.V. Sebum um, about copyright was because he was just, it was just the book. They were just reading the book essentially. So that's how it was happening so fast because there really was barely... They weren't rewriting anything. You just needed yeah. a copy of the book and you were good to go. Just highlighting the passages. Yeah. No highlighters, but pens. <laughs> just read this, walk over there. there yeah, you go. exactly. According to UVA Today, by the beginning of the 20th century, more than 400 separate companies, theater companies, like traveled and performed some sort of version of this story. It was also consistently performed on stage for more than half a century. So it's pretty significant. Mm. Uncle Tom's Cabin became so popular on stage and was performed so often that it like created its own subset of theater, essentially. So these were called Tom shows. And these shows were like basically any theatrical production that usually had people in blackface mm. um, that were loosely based off of the book. But they could spin off into like different stories or whatnot to get people, you know, kind of coming back. It's important to note that Stowe did not write these plays. She didn't get any of that sweet royalty money. Copyright was still wild, wild west at this point. That Burnett case didn't happen until the 1880s. So novelists are just getting ripped off right and left and Stowe pretty much the number one who's getting ripped off at this point. (laughs) So I think that's one of the reasons why the Tom shows really took off. Like all of these copycats could just capitalize off of a best-selling novel, right? Mm. And unsurprisingly, a lot of them decided to amp up the drama and the comedy elements on stage, changing Stowe's original intent of the book. Now, there is an excellent NPR interview with professor and folklorist Patricia Turner entitled Why African-Americans Loathe Uncle Tom. Um, This is something that we're going to get into when we actually discuss Uncle Tom, the book, but it does have very like negative connotations today, Mm. being an Uncle Tom. And um, this piece sort of explains like how that happened. Hannah, would you read the following quote from Professor Turner? Yeah. Many African-Americans don't hate the real story that Stowe wrote. The Uncle Tom character that she gives is extraordinarily Christian. The climax of the story really comes when Uncle Tom is asked to reveal where two slave women are hiding who had been sexually abused by their master and he refuses. 
Knowing that he's going to be beaten to death, he refused to say where they are, and African Americans who have read the novel can appreciate what kind of heroism that took for a black man to sign away his life to save two black women. Unfortunately, the stage depictions don't include that part of the story. They grossly distort Uncle Tom into an older man than he is in the novel, a man whose English is poor, a man who will do quite the opposite, who will sell out any black man if it will curry favour of a white employer, a white master, a white mistress. It's that distorted character that is so objectionable to African-Americans. She goes on to say that the producers of the early stage shows didn't think that they could attract an audience for the Uncle Tom as he was depicted by Stowe. Um, They could sell tickets as they had been successful by showing blacks in minstrel depictions, showing them liking to dance more than they like to work, showing their insensitivity to each other, showing their willingness to tell the master or mistress what he or she wanted to hear. That sold tickets. And so those were the shows that were produced, staged, and circulated throughout the world. It's interesting to note that a lot of the producers of these shows saw themselves as like pro Uncle Tom's mm. Cabin, right? These these people are actually like for abolition. But they were also all about perpetuating harmful stereotypes and racism in the name of entertainment, right? Mm-hmm. So really for their financial gain. I do want to say that there were also anti-Tom shows that were deliberately more explicit in their disdain for the story. Stowe's book elicited so many responses, good, bad, everything on the scale in between. But um, I think it's interesting when you're reading reviews of Uncle Tom's Cabin, like some critics call her an angel Mm. and others were like all out writing columns about how she was like the very devil herself. Um, And you can see this perpetuated sort of also on stage and in competing novels. So we're going to talk about this a lot next year. And I've actually even started like a little bit of prep work for that season. And I'm currently reading some anti-Tom literature including The Planter's Northern Bride by Caroline Lee Hintz. Hannah, do you want to read the synopsis for this book from Wikipedia real quick? So the book's main character is Eulalia, a young daughter of an abolitionist from New England and the wife of a plantation owner named Moreland. At first, indoctrined by her father's view on abolitionism, Eulalia initially condemns her husband's use of slaves on his plantation, even though he is behaving benignly towards them. But she soon realises how well off Moreland's slaves truly are. As time passes, Eulalia also discovers a plot by a group of local abolitionists to stage a large-scale slave rebellion, which aims to free the otherwise content slaves of the plantation and to murder both Moreland and Eulalia, despite their kindness to the slaves. Right. Ooh. Wow. I know. Um, Caroline Lee Hintz is a very interesting figure to study alongside Harriet Beecher Stowe. Um, She was also born into a large, middle-class New England family. Like Harriet, she was well-educated. She taught school. Um, She was also a mother that experienced the loss of a child. 
And she had a pretty significant literary career. These guys kind of had like parallel lives, Mm. honestly. And in 1832, Hintz started a school for girls in Cincinnati, where she also joined a literary society called the Semicolon Club, where Harriet Beecher Stowe was also a member. So these gals knew each other. I wonder if there's like, evil's not the right word. I wonder if there's like, an opposite counterpart for every one of our authors. We just haven't found them. (laughs) Yeah, maybe that's something else that we should look into next year. Investigating the, you know, dark devils. That might be an interesting miniseries. Okay. Um, Anyway, got some bad news for you all. One, we've run out of time. Two, This is actually the last episode in our adaptation mini-series, but I do have some good news, and that is that um, we've got some bonus episodes and, like, videos and fun content headed your way in the next few weeks. And two, we are going to be doing an online Harriet Beecher Stowe talk at Elizabeth Gaskell's house on Wednesday, October 13th. And you can find out more details about that talk at elizabethgaskellhouse.co.uk, as well as on our socials. That's right. You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us, bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com. You can join our wonderful Facebook community by searching for Bonnets at Dawn. And you can order our book, Why She Wrote, from all major retailers, including our favourite, bookshop.org. Thank you.